there are long sections that are actually not very novelistic because it was an early novel, but with speeches and conversations that are dealing with with the responsibility of a creator toward his creation and, and what happens if a creator abandons his creation. These are questions that that people are still asking and grappling with. And that's really what Frankenstein is about, but it's also wrapped up in this sort of scary, terrifying story of a, of a creature who is on the loose and out to kill everyone you love. Um, but, but it really is a profoundly theological work. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One thing I have experienced over and over again is this odd, even strange, I think I could even call it awkward relationship between Christians and guest literature, especially when we move towards our world, which we talk about so much on this podcast, the world of theology. Uh, Folks love to talk about Herman Bavink or John Calvin or Athanasius. But as soon as we introduce or we move beyond some of those familiar domains to the world of literature, whether it be nonfiction or fiction, all of a sudden, well, I hear a lot of crickets. And that is actually a shame. In fact, worst case scenario, I even experience some Christians a bit suspicious or critical or skeptical. Perhaps you've experienced this as well where someone might say, well, why would I read anything besides the Bible anyways? Or at best, why wouldn't we just stick to reading, say, theology or Christian living books that that, uh, come out each year? This type of mindset, though, I think is actually detrimental to what Christianity is all about and how God has revealed himself, not just in his special revelation, but even in his general revelation, as we look to his common grace and actually explore some of the virtues that Christians down through the ages found so essential and didn't limit themselves uh, simply to Christian literature, but actually looked outside of Christian literature to explore a whole range of novels and, and authors that brought them into conversation about the big ideas that we care so much about, even some of the virtues that Christianity claims claims and and actually wants to to make a case for. All that to say, when we come to Christianity, we can't actually remove literature from the conversation. And if we do so, well, could it be that we actually, well, we actually cut ourselves off from everything from art to virtue and so much more? Well, it's hard to think of someone better to talk to about this predicament than Karen Swallow Pryor. You may know her from so many of the different books she's written, as well as uh, some of her online articles. She is research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And some of her more recent books include On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. 
She also is editing an ongoing series of, uh, well, literary classics, books like Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, or one of my favorites, most recently, Frankenstein. Karen, it's really such a joy and privilege uh, to have you on the Creta podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, and your introduction just touched all of the all of the points that are important to me. So I think we're going to have a great conversation. I think so too, and and I I I really just feel embarrassed that we haven't had this conversation already. So what? It's so good to finally be able to sit down, so to speak, and and uh, talk about these things. I think the one thing, uh, you know, I, I just have to start here because, you know, I've I've read you uh, in many of the different books you've written and sort of uh, followed some of your online articles. And I assume with some of our listeners, this is the case as well. And I've noticed that, well, it really, the question that has come up in my mind is where, when did Karen Swallow Pryor actually become Karen Swallow Pryor that, that we know and love so well in terms of, of your literary output? What, so, so was there, what, what happened and was there something maybe early on or later in life that, that really triggered, you know what, I think I want to devote my life, even as a Christian, I want to devote my life to literature? Well, it really is a lifelong story. Um, I grew up loving books. I fell in love. My mother read to me when I was, you know, a baby and a child. And as soon as I learned to read on my own. I always had my nose in a book, um, so I was a, a lifelong reader and loved English in school, um, but actually didn't plan to teach or even plan to pursue English because I didn't know that it was something that one could take seriously and study. I wasn't even planning to be an academic. I didn't know anything about that. That wasn't really an option in my world, um, but when I went to college and discovered English classes that were academic and challenging. Um, I switched my major to English, and I, I was a Christian. I, I grew up in a Christian home and accepted the Lord as a very young girl, but it wasn't until I went into my PhD program in English that I was actually forced to find a way to integrate my Christianity with my love of literature, because I went to a state university. All my education was secular. I went to a state university that was extremely liberal and hostile to Christianity. Mm. And so I, it was, I was going to come out of that either abandoning my faith or figuring out how to integrate those two things. And by the grace of God, um, it's really there that I came to understand that words come from uh, the creator of the word and that there is no way to separate them. This gift of language and literature and even art more broadly comes from a creator God. Um, And it was actually the most liberal, shocking um, professor I had in grad school who who introduced to me a, a sort of Christian understanding of literature by introducing me to John Milton and some of his work. Um, and so it's just amazing how God used this lifelong love of mine um, to bring together my, my love of, of literature and my faith in a, and, and to make it more robust and engaging. And, and that was, it was a lifelong journey, but that was the turning point in, in my PhD program. 
And I have to also ask, because um, anyone who's read on Reading Well um, might recollect that Leland Riken wrote the foreword to that. Um, yeah. How is how is Leland? I mean, he he has has his own story um, as to how he sort of fell into this world. How has Leland had an influence on you? Mm. It's so funny because before this um, interview, I'm preparing for a class that I'm teaching in, a, in a, next week, and I'm reading more Leland Reichen. So um, <laughs> I've been spending the afternoon with, with, with one of his books. Uh, and so he is really a great hero of mine. Um, because I grew up in, I mean, in a Christian home, but really in a very secular, liberal environment, and I wasn't exposed to any kind of Christian thinking that um, that applied to any academic area, let alone my own. When I was in uh, in graduate school, in this crisis that I just talked about, I I didn't know. I knew I knew there was a way to integrate um, biblical understanding with literary understanding, and I but I didn't know how to do it. And I had never been exposed to anyone doing that. And mm. so I had to look around and there was one person I knew who had done that. And he, his name is Gene Edward Beath. He's a former editor at world magazine and former provost at uh, Patrick Henry college. And he personally helped me, he helped me with his books and then corresponded with me and helped me. And then it was not long after that, that I discovered Leland Riken's works. And he came to speak, um, where at Liberty University, where I was teaching very early on. And so he played a, a very influential role in helping me to understand how to think about literature and the imagination Christianly. One of the things that I have really appreciated about your approach is you not only are encouraging others, uh, maybe others who have had similar, you know, a similar upbringing or story to yours, you're not only encouraging them to to think through this lens, but you're also actually teaching them how how to read. And of course, that's you know the the subject of of one of your recent books. Um, but one of the things that I I really found so intriguing was as you're you're going about that process, you actually call reading an aesthetic experience. Now that may throw some folks off. It might even sound uh, a bit maybe for some people it might they might even be a bit suspicious especially if they've been interacting and in, you know certain conservative traditions where a word like aesthetic is something that can mm-hmm. only be negative or something to be avoided why should we not be afraid of of this type of uh, approach to reading well i think we need to begin with not to go too far back, but we need to begin with the incarnation of the fact that um, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us to reflect our humanity and connect with us on our human level. And we also, as human beings, are embodied creatures. There is no way to avoid the fact that we are aesthetic creatures. I mean, the the basic definition of that word um, has to do with sensory experience that comes from, you know, from inside our bodies. It's not just emotion or some mystical response. Um, Just think of what the word anesthesia means, which is etymologically related. Anesthesia is something that 
stops us from having sensory experience and at a time when we, we don't want to have that <laughs> having surgery or something. Um, and aesthetic comes from a, a, the same root word. It's just simply the way that our bodies as bodies react to something. And we can pretend that doesn't matter or we can ignore it or not um, be intentional about it or in tune with it. But we are constantly, ex- our whole lives, I mean, if we're not experiencing something bodily, then we're dead. Um, mm. And so we, but we, unfortunately in not just Christians, but just in the modern world, um, we have, you know, followed the dictate of Descartes who says, I think therefore I am. Mm. And so we've kind of channeled all of our understanding and experience into what we think about things um, instead of how we experience them as bodily creatures. And so literature is an aesthetic experience in the sense that it shows rather than tells, Mm. and that we experience a story in a very, in a formative way rather than an informational way. That's so helpful because I have often wrestled with this in so many ways, especially, um, you know, I'm, I'm operating in the world of theology and in the world of theology, it's all about telling, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, In which you're, you're trying to one degree or another to arrive at something prescriptive. And uh, many of the books then that you read are, are going to kind of channel towards that, that goal. And, um, at the same time, though, as, as important as that is, as crucial as it is, uh, at the same time, though, I sometimes notice that it can, oddly enough, it can be, it can foster maybe uh, a mentality, wrongly so, but a, a mentality among maybe the average pastor out there or you know, the, the student who graduates from, say, a Christian college, for example, it can they can assume, oh, well, that which, which I really need to read, that which I really need to focus on is, is merely um, the telling, not the showing, as you described it. Or, mm-hmm. or maybe, uh, and I think you put it this way, um, uh, at one point you say uh, the great books teach us how to think, not necessarily what to think. Now, mm-hmm. in my experience, sometimes Christians get really nervous at this point because they think, <laughs> well, uh, then what's the point? What? Why would I? Why would I? You know, waste my time, as they all say, uh, looking at um, really diving into a deep world of fiction, for example, that's not going to tell me what to think uh, on every single page. Now, I have noticed that in systematic theology, uh, just to to kind of dip into my my world for a minute, uh, this is. This, you know, you mentioned Descartes a minute ago. There's been a bit of a transition. Uh, when you go back to some of the older theologians, they would write systematic theology. But interestingly enough, they would have large sections on virtues. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and you think of uh, one of the greats, right? Uh, Thomas Aquinas, who writes right. the Summa and spends, goodness, it seems like almost a third of it just on virtues. But then all of a sudden, we get more into the modern age and the contemporary scene and virtues just disappear. Uh, theologians mm-hmm. don't talk about them so much. And uh, I don't know if this is the case, but I, I start to wonder, could this actually be contributing towards this, this suspicion overall? So let me just throw this back on you for a minute as you reflect. 
how how is something like virtue, for example, actually moving us towards a a fuller understanding of God in the world rather than against it? Well, I love that question. So um, I'll I'll start by going back to to the connection of virtue to its aesthetic experience. Um, a virtuous person is a person who has character. Um, and we talk about character as something that is formed. I think most people know that, that, that the care, you know, we are, we are born depraved, we are sinners. Um, and, you know, to improve on that, to pr- improve our care, our natural bent is toward sin and doing wrong. And so, Yes, it takes God's grace, but we also can develop our character in godly ways. I mean, Paul is, is clear on this when he talks about adding to our faith virtue um, and and a whole list of things that follows from there. Um, and so if we think about virtue as being the form of our character, um, not just the content, um, even though you know they can't really be se- separated, it's not just something that we, that we think about that we know is the right thing to do, but it we actually have character when we do that right thing and without even having to think about it because we have been so formed in our character that uh, it, that the right decision, the right action becomes part of our character. Um, and this is when the form and content kind of meld together. And in thinking about this in terms of, of how that points us to God, I mean, there are as, as, Paul and Aquinas and many other theologians have pointed out there are um, uh, qualities of character that are biblical. Um, they're called the theological virtues. Foremost among them are, are um, faith, hope, and, and love. Uh, those are things that don't come naturally to us. Um, Aquinas talks about how it, they actually, the theological virtues require you know, supernatural giftings from God, but yet we can still cultivate them and grow them and so that they become more part of who we are and we reflect God's character um, more. It will never be effortlessly effortless, but um, we can reflect his character more and more as we intentionally try to grow in character. You know, one way we could go about this discussion is, uh, you know, we've been talking about showing rather than telling. So, so maybe we could take an opportunity to, to do just that. Uh, let me rattle off uh, a few. I think these are probably some of your favorites too, just uh, judging by what you've written. But uh, so many of these are my favorites as well. Let me just rattle off a number of just literary classics, sometimes modern classics, um, and can you help us just connect the dots between uh, the type of virtues that come out in, in these novels and um, how, how that then brings to our attention just the beauty of literature? So, so first up, uh, Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Maybe, the, I mean, hopefully this is a book that every, every listener has read. But <laughs> if not, let's just say, let's just say, if not, uh, justice is so, uh, it, it's maybe it's something that doesn't at first grab the attention, but the more you read A Tale of Two Cities, justice starts to rise to the surface. Why is that? Mm. Yes. And uh, spoiler alert, I'll try not to give too much away, but um, <laughs> uh, Sidney Carton in um, A Tale of Two Cities is one of the few characters that I will legitimately say is a true Christ figure. Um, mm. Christians, when they do read literature, often like to look look for those and um, and maybe 
look for them too zealously, but um, Tartan really is is a Christ figure in, in the sacrifice that he makes at the end of the story. But what I love about the story and what I drew out in on reading well is the way that it, as you said, it it deals with with justice and. It's so brilliant because Charles Dickens was writing in the middle of the 19th century about events that had happened at the end of the previous century because he was he was asking his he was inviting his readers to look at those events um, of the French Revolution where one excess led to its opposite excess rather than to a, a virtuous moderation. Um, between the two sides, and he was Dickens was afraid that his own culture was about to make the same mistake. And so, when we we read this story today in 21st century America, where I think we're facing some of the same um, vices, um, you know, going to one extreme in terms of our matters of injustice or another, um, all of these layers of what happened in the past that Charles Dickens was writing about. They offer us, you know, again, almost like parables where we can we can we can look at the injustices of the past, look at the injustices that happened the next century, look at our own injustices and learn not just in terms of information, but actually going through the kind of experience that's narrated so that we can feel the sense and the weight of the injustice and also the sense and the weight of the reaction to that injustice that just unleashes more injustice. Mm. Now, one of my favorites, uh, in fact, I'm actually reading this book right now uh, with my eight-year-old son. And at first he was a bit uh, not sure, like, Dad, you know, why, why, why are we reading this old book? Um, but the more we've read it, the more it's sort of grown on him, especially as an eight-year-old boy. And that is, of course, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Now, mm-hmm. I haven't said this to him yet, and I'm kind of waiting to see if he's going to say it at some point in the book, but courage. Courage, uh, mm-hmm. by the time you finish, you start to, to just sense it. You can almost taste it in your mouth. What, what is Twain doing here? Mm. Now, again, this is this, well, all of the <laughs> work of literature that is, is good or great will, will do this thing that I'm talking about, which is allow for a formative experience rather than just information. We could, we could read about courage and I cite a lot of of scholars and theologians and their definitions of courage and what Aristotle said it was and what Aquinas said it was and so on. But when you read a story like Huckleberry Finn and you are seeing the world through this young boy's eyes, he, he lives in a world where right has been taught as what's wrong and what's wrong has been taught as what's right. And I think we all live in a world like that, mm-hmm. um, in, you know, one area or another. And he, he literally does not know right from wrong because his conscience has been so malformed. And yet the image of God in him still speaks. And he knows, even though he's, he's been taught wrongly, he knows what the right thing to do is. Uh, in terms of, you know, what he should do with about this runaway slave. Should he return the slave or should he continue to help hide the slave? And even though he's been taught incorrectly in his culture, um, it take, he, it's because of that that it takes courage for him to do the right thing. And then, of course, I do point to 
um, Jim, the slave, as being the model of, because there are different kinds of courage, he's really the ultimate picture of courage in that story because of what he does. He risks his own freedom to help um, one of, to help Huck's friend Tom uh, in, when his life is in danger. So it's a wonderful, adventurous, funny story mm. um, because it is written in a humorous way. Um, and that humor actually helps to make that injustice and the, the, the wrongs of his society seem even worse in some, some indirect way. Um, but we get to, you know, exercise our own, our own decisions about what the courageous thing to do or not would be. Uh, and that's the formative part of the story. Now, this next one. Uh, I, I'm going to share a little bit of my own embarrassment here because I, I've read uh, Last Samurai by Endo uh, just recently, <laughs> and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm well, really embarrassed. Well, I haven't I haven't read that one. I haven't okay. read that one. <laughs> okay, well then then uh, maybe you can uh, empathize with me here. I read it, and um, my wife and I we were actually took a just a vacation the two of us in uh, Miami. And uh, I grabbed it off the shelf right before I left. And she said, you know, you, you've got to read this. Um, I, I think it will change your life. <laughs> so I did. And I read it. Um, now, I think most people have probably read Silence. And mm-hmm. that is a profound book as well. But um, with each one of these, uh, the faith and, and what you just said, actually, about Mark Twain and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, this uh, really tug and pull, even a, a moral uh, tug and pull, as he's trying mm-hmm. to decide, you know, what what do I do? Should I turn? Should, do I turn him in? Do I not? And I notice that this comes out, uh, but not so much in the sense of courage, though. Though I think courage is there, but also with faith itself, because in this context of of books like Silence and Last Samurai. There's really a test at this point, uh, almost in, in an Abraham sense. Uh, maybe you could comment mm-hmm. just for a minute on, on silence. What, what, is, what is it about this novel that is so gripping? And at the same time, just it almost destroys you as, as you, you sort of weep uh-huh. with what's happening. Yeah, no, of course, this, um, this novel does have a, 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 is rooted in, in historical events of the 17th century with Catholic missionaries. To Japan, and we, you know, we think our, our our Christian imaginations are filled with images of of missionaries who um, and Christians who are who are tortured for the faith. You know that they, they have to make a decision to to blaspheme or deny Christ or um, do some other uh, thing that would would violate their conscience and violate the faith or lose their lives. And that's sort of a common trope because it has, it has happened throughout history but but in silence it becomes even more excruciating because a missionary is put in a position to deny Christ in order to save others not himself but others from being tortured mm. um it's really it's it's the probably the most um excruciating dilemma that anyone could imagine now that part didn't really happen um, in uh, historical events that the story draws upon, but there is a kind of um, you know there there is a modern application because oftentimes you know we in the West we have a more individualized version of of faith and Christianity for 
a lot of reasons. And we forget about, we we don't think about what it means to be a Christian in community and how our Christianity, uh, especially, especially if we're Christians in a, in a non-Christian majority community, the impact and the influence that that has. And so the central question of silence, I kind of boiled it down to that old Baptist question that I was raised with. And I think we all continue to struggle with is, you know, what does it take, you know, can you lose your salvation? And, and Mm. what does that even, what does that even mean? And uh, of course, you know, I believe that we can't, but then others would say, well, you know, if we do, if we apostatize, then maybe we never had it to begin with. And these are vexing questions um, and excruciating to read in this novel, but they're also everyday mundane questions because how many times do we deny Christ in our normal everyday lives Mm. and interacting with people? And so a, a very dramatic, tragic, um, ambiguous story like that can just help us to ask similar questions in our own lives, even in a, on a smaller scale. Now, one more that I'm going to throw in here is Leo Tolstoy. Now, uh, a little background, personal background here. Uh, Leo Tolstoy was uh, one of the first I read when I started to uh, enter into this this whole new world of of literature, and I just I just fell in love with with Tolstoy's writing. In, in so many ways. Um, but <laughs> I, I noticed uh, very quickly that others sort of had a, a love or hate relationship <laughs> with Leo Tolstoy. They, they either loved him or they just thought, how in the world could you <laughs> like? And, and I, I started to sense that some of it was, they oh, they, they felt that he's too morbid. Uh, or it's just depressing. Now, I don't know. Maybe that says something about my own personality. <laughs> but but if I can make a little bit of a case here, uh, and, and I'm going to give you the chance as well, uh, I think listeners will discover that, well, if you press through, uh, you might just discover that Tolstoy has a lot to say about love. Why is that the case? Mm-hmm. Um Yes, and of course the the classic that I that I haven't written about is Anna Karenina, which is just a, a wonderful story, um, and 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 thick and difficult as I think all of the Russian writers are actually. Yeah. Um, but what I the story I write about in On Reading Well, which I think is a, is um, a story that's a good place to start with Tolstoy is um, the death of Ivan Ilyich, which is a it's a novella, it's a long short story, it's not really a novel length. Um, but it really is a parable um, for our times. It's about a, a man. It starts with his death, so there's no spoiler there. <laughs> um, but then, then looks back on how this man lived his life according to all of the sort of the wrong values, just sort of you know, um, according to decorum and wanting to have the the right home and the right job and the right wife and go to the right parties and have the right friends. Mm. Um, and he had all of that, but he did not have love, um, until you know, the end of his life. And he found love and, and Christ really, um, because of the, of the kind ministrations of his, of his servant. It is just one of the most moving. I, I've read a lot of literature and I love much of it, but, but I would, this story is one of the most moving stories yes. and one that um, that withstands 
reading over and over and over again and reveals new things um, with every reading. And it, it, it's short enough that I, I just think people, I would encourage them. It is dark. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think the Russian name, the Russian names for me are an obstacle. Yes. Um, you, you know, so I think that that can be a stumbling block too, but um, all reading well of good literature requires time and attention and slowness. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it goes against everything that we do in most of our lives, even even other kinds of reading. This is, you know, the other kinds of reading we do on the internet or in newspapers or um, even sometimes academic journals, even though they might be, you know, complex reading, we're often just trying to get the information, as you mentioned, get to the point. Um, but literature forms us in so many ways, including the fact that it, good literature forces us to to slow down and be immersed in this world of words, because these words aren't just there to, to communicate directly. Um, literary words are like poetry. They are rich with layers and meaning, and they open up so many thoughts and ideas and, yes, aesthetic experience. So we need to read literature in a different way than what we're accustomed to reading most of our days, most of our lives. I, what you just said right there uh, is is so true, and I, I, I just have to underline it for our listeners because, uh, well, I remember reading this book uh, for the first time, and it is short. It's actually really short. Uh, I remember uh, writing on the tube when, when we lived in London and picking it up at uh, a little book, book hidden bookstore, and I had I had read Tolstoy before, but not this one. And as I sat down with it, you're right; it, it does take time, and there are some of these obstacles with some of the Russian um, authors in particular. But it's so worth it. And uh, I found myself, just like you said, uh, I found myself being really formed in in so many new ways. Now, Karen, you you have. Uh, you know, written books on writing and reading, of course, but you are also editing uh, a number of of classics uh, with B and H Publishing, and mm-hmm. uh, some of these include books like Sense and Sensibility, uh, Frankenstein, and and so many others that are coming out this year and I think in future years as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I have to to bring our attention to this because <clears throat> I went back to your, and, and by the way, for listeners, you, you, you have to pick these up, uh, not only for the sake of reading these books, but also uh, for Karen's uh, introductions uh, to each of them, which are really helpful. Uh, you, you might find, okay, some of these uh, great works intimidating, but she gives you such a helpful introduction, walking you through uh, what they're about and, and what they're trying to attain. But I went back to Sense and Sensibility, and I was looking at your introduction to it, and I had circled one this one page where you make this connection between Jane Austen and Seinfeld. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I started circling it because, uh, well, first of all, Jane Austen is, is of course, one of my favorites. I, I read Jane Austen. Uh, while I was in college and seminary, uh, while I was studying theology, believe it or not. And then, of course, Seinfeld. Oh, I, I mean, 
there's no contest. Uh, Seinfeld, when it comes to comedy and satire, uh, I just think is the king. <laughs> so that said, I, I, I couldn't believe that you were making this reference. And maybe to some of our listeners, they think, no, no way, there, there can't be a connection. But, but uh, hear us out. You do make a connection because you talk about how, whether it's Jane Austen or, or uh, Seinfeld, the comedy or maybe the satire, to be a bit more specific, uh, one of the reasons it connected back then with Austin's audience and it connects now with, you know, those who watch Seinfeld is because, well, you say this, you say um, the norms, and we saw this when we were talking about, uh, you know, the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, uh, the norms uh, that are there in our world that the characters you're encountering, they're, they're supposed to meet those norms and yet they're failing to meet them. And sometimes in the, the most tragic or comical ways. Uh, can you can you touch on this a little bit? What what is it, um, you know, what is it exactly about the failure? Because I think I think oftentimes we approach reading this way. We think, okay, I'm going to go to a book uh, because it's going to tell me how to succeed. Uh, it's going to tell me what to do in order to to live a life that's going. Now that may be true. But oftentimes when we come to literature, uh, it works in a very different way. It actually accentuates failure <laughs> in the characters mm -hmm. in a way that could be comical, but actually, like you said, creates a type of formation. Why is that the case? Yeah, well, of course, we're talking about um, various forms of satire when we talk about Austin or Seinfeld or even even The Office. I would throw that in there. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> you know, any kind of satire, there, there are various kinds, but they, you know, they ridicule vice or folly for the purpose of correction. So um, in, you know, in, in, in Seinfeld, I think we see both vice and folly <laughs> being mocked <laughs> because these are characters are, are pretty loose and lewd, but they're also foolish at times. Um, and a lot of people who aren't familiar with the show or maybe don't get it, don't understand that it is actually, that it is satire, that these, that these characters are not ones that we're supposed to like or want to emulate. They are, you know, full of, of vice and folly. Um, and, uh, that doesn't make them evil or, or entirely unlovable, but um, we are supposed to sort of laugh at their at their foibles and their and their errors. And the same is true in Austin. Um, and the, all of these are called a, a comedy of manners because they are ex dealing with a class of society in Austin's day. You know, she was writing about sort of the. The, the, the middle and upper class of, of her world in Seinfeld it's talking about you know young single or I guess yuppies that's an old term but young urban professionals or semi-professionals and in the office it's office culture so there each of these settings has kind of rules that are spoken or unspoken about how you're supposed to behave and when you fail to meet um, those rules which is what Austin's novels are all about they they include love stories, but they're really about, you know, foolish mothers and fathers and mm. sisters and gentlemen um, who are kind of, you know, are, are making errors along the way to finding um, the good life. Um, Austin really was uh, a moral theologian and a virtue ethicist um, mm. in every way. Her stories are pointing out the true way to virtue and morality within a Christian worldview just using humor and satire to do it. One of my 
favorite. Uh, and here I know that I'm going to just step on all kinds of toes, but I got to say it anyways. Uh, one of my favorite times of the year, I know everyone says fall, but for me, actually, it's a bit more specific. Um, I actually like Halloween, and, and, and not maybe for, for some of the reasons that people hate Halloween, but for me, <laughs> um, I, I have a very uh, uh, ongoing uh, relationship with horror fiction or science fiction, um, if we wanted to stretch that more broadly. And um, I always remind people, don't forget, don't forget that uh, C.S. Lewis actually wrote uh, a type of science fiction. But uh, I think that actually uh, even horror fiction, um, it does something unique. And it, in what, what does it do? Well, in one sense, it does a lot, I suppose. But in one sense, it brings us face to face with our fears. And this is mm. actually um, at the very core of, of much of so much of what's relevant in our life. I, I mean, even think about the world we're living in right now. Uh, so much of the uh, pandemic and how that has really brought to the surface so many of our fears and really exposed us in ways that we're uncomfortable with. I don't think it's surprising that we're now seeing on um, all kinds of TV series that are playing off of this and, and wanting to take us into this world to, to actually talk about well, what are your fears and, and how are those exposed with something like a pandemic. Of course, this is not new, though. Uh, something like science fiction or specifically like horror fiction, uh, we could go back to the 19th century, right, and talk about Frankenstein. And I think, well, I was just so, so glad to see this. You know, you're, you're coming out with books like uh, Pride, uh, Pride and Pe- Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility, but you're also turning, turning to someone like Mary Shelley and uh, with her book, Frankenstein. Now, I know that some of our listeners are here. We're, we're really uh, trying to pull them in, right? Because for, for so many of them, they're, they're going to think, oh my goodness, what, what in the world could Jesus have to do with Frankenstein? So let me throw this back <laughs> to you, Karen. Uh, can, you, can you tell us, what, why is it the case that maybe we should even pay attention to something like horror fiction or even a classic like Frankenstein? Yes, uh, we absolutely should. I mean, of course, the the novel Frankenstein that Mary Shelley wrote in 1818 is very different from most of the the film adaptations of it, mm. and and you know, so that's that's the one subject. Uh, but of course, those film versions are classics for for similar reasons because they are dealing, like the novel deals with the whole topic of of creation, um, and godlike power and what happens when we exceed um, the bounds that we should have as humans. But I think readers who haven't actually read the novel Frankenstein will be really surprised at the depth of theological questions and insights in that novel. Mm. Um, Mary Shelley draws heavily on John Milton's epic Christian, Christian epic Paradise Lost. Um, the imagery and, and ideas raised in that. And there are long sections that are it's actually not very novelistic because it was an early novel, but, but with speeches and conversations that are dealing with, with the responsibility of a creator toward his creation and, and what happens if a creator abandons his creation. These are questions that, 
that people are still asking and grappling with. Um, And that's really what Frankenstein is about. But it's also wrapped up in this sort of scary, terrifying story (laughs) of a a creature who is on the loose and out to kill everyone you love. Um, But but it really is a profoundly theological work. We've been talking to uh, Karen Swallow Pryor, who is a research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She is also a prolific author. Perhaps you've uh, seen her book on reading well. Uh, I can't encourage our listeners enough. uh, Pick up her book on reading well, but also, 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 also make sure you grab so many of these modern classics that she is editing and writing introductions to, whether it is a, a Jane Austen or perhaps it's a Frankenstein and so many more that are still coming out. I hope that uh, maybe there there might just be some theological minds out there who go to a book like like Frankenstein to actually realize, hey, this actually has something profound to say about God and the creation, about what it means to abuse power, and so much, so much more. Karen, uh, how fun has this been uh, to talk to you about so many of, of these favorites of mine and... Um, I just can't uh, thank you enough for coming on the Credo podcast. And uh, where would you, uh, if I can just give you the last word here, how would you encourage uh, some of our listeners? Uh, where, where would you say they should begin if, if this is just a whole brand new and maybe even foreign world to them? Well, I did edit those classics with such readers in mind. Um, and as you said, the I give introductions that are, designed to help a reader sort of know what to look. I don't have any spoilers in the introduction, <laughs> but just kind of help them know what to look for, what the context is, what the themes are, and how to read the work as a Christian. And I include discussion and reflection questions um, to help dig a little bit deeper in and footnotes that kind of that help um, with archaic or um, obsolete words or mm. terms. Um, so that would be, I mean, that's what I designed the series for. So I hope that listeners will encourage the, the last two are coming out next year. It's a six volume um, series. And the next ones uh, that will be out in the spring are The Scarlet Letter and Test of the Derber Bells. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.